That was Tina Arena with The Flame. I make no apologies for playing that song, even though maybe it's slightly tenuous in regard to our next piece. Now, Ross Lusted, who is the subject of our long-form interview today, is the chef, restaurateur, owner of Woodcut in Sydney. It's in Crown Towers, and it has a dress circle position there on Sydney Harbour. Ross has been on an incredible journey. He's been all sorts of things. He's been uh, a chef initially, then he gave it up and he went into hotel management, opened up a hotel in the US that was voted the Resort Hotel of the Year, uh, the world's best resort hotel, and it was built in the desert virtually from scratch. He's also worked in other properties and he came back to chefing and was chef of the year and the hottest chef in Australia in around about 2010. And he's now at Crown and he's, through his whole journey, it's been about using flame. He cooks on an open fire. I was lucky enough to be taken there for my birthday a few weeks ago. I decided I'd better see if I can interview Ross because it was quite an interesting dinner and it's not an inexpensive place to eat. But I think quality pretty soon overtakes uh, any concerns about a price tag when uh, the food is as good as it was. Ross, welcome to Travel Writers Radio. Great to be with you, Graham. Ross, I had the pleasure. It was my birthday recently and uh, I had the pleasure of eating at your restaurant with my family in Sydney. We had a great night and I just I said to my, my son who works for Crown, I said, um, do you reckon you can get me an interview with the bloke that owns that restaurant? Because um, I thought it was terrific. So here we are talking, Ross. So you've got, you've really got a dress circle restaurant there on the uh, water's edge of Barangaroo. Is that something you've always wanted to, to do? Oh, look, Graeme, if I knew what I wanted to do in my life, I would be, I'd be probably a bit more successful than what I, uh, what I am. But well, it was I've, full the night I was there. Yeah, I've lived a very, uh, priv- not privileged life is not the right word, um, very lucky. I've made met some great people and, and along the way I've, I've, I think I've had three or four careers and not all of them successful, but... I think to answer your question, did I ever, you know, think I'd have a restaurant on Sydney Harbour in a in a really spectacular building and 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 be working um, very closely with Crown Resorts? I don't think that was ever on my radar. But the I remember first, you know, I grew up in South Africa and my parents emigrated to Australia and I grew up in Brisbane. But when I first moved to Sydney, I was so taken by the harbour and the scale of everything in Sydney. And I think it's as a city in the world, it truly is a, it's a world-class city and one of the, you know, most livable cities as well. So I, I feel very privileged to actually stand in my restaurant and look out and think, wow, how did, how did all this happen? I mean, there, there definitely is some, uh, a journey, um, as you can imagine, but it is, it's, you know, we're one of two restaurants on the waterfront and then Crown has their, their lobby bar there, but it, it is a spectacular location. And to be honest, the, you need, you need something that is quite significant in terms of a concept, an idea, quality of the, of what you do. And that's what we hope to bring to Sydney. I've been lucky enough to live in, I think, seven countries in my life. So traveled a lot, seen a lot, 
in my previous life in hotel development with uh, Aman Resorts. We built a lot of projects. But what I found is as I traveled and lived overseas and talked to a lot of people and you end up learning more about your business and particularly cooking, being a chef, I think by actually not cooking which sounds a little bit crazy, but I think I learned more by traveling and experiencing just other cultures, other cuisines. And you take a lot of notes. And then when you actually start formulating an idea for a restaurant, you just have a huge amount of depth to draw on. And I think that's what's exciting for me now. I think we've just sort of scratched the tip of the iceberg of what we could do with woodcut. So it draws on a lot of my travels, my my journey and so yeah very exciting you were telling me you started to cook was it around the age of 16 i actually lied about my age (laughs) Uh, my, my sister and i are very close so i lied about my age to get a job at mcdonald's and i think i was about 15 then uh, I said we were twins, so I could get away with it. But um, you can't do that these days. <laughs> but no, I I sort of fell into cooking, to be honest. It wasn't something that, you know, my parents aspired for me to do. I think, you know, there was talk of me being a dentist. And, you know, in South Africa, you're very – your life is planned out, I suppose, in terms of your education and what's expected. But our neighbor worked in a restaurant and she asked me on the school holidays, did I – you know, did I want to do some work that needed some help? And I mean, it was unbelievable. I worked in this Italian restaurant and, you know, they're good looking waitresses. You could come and go sort of as you please. You could get home at midnight. No one no one asked. You just said, I had a busy night at work. So yeah. I, I loved it. I loved the... I love the um, intensity of the ki- of kitchen. Uh, you can't turn it off. Once you open the doors, you can't just say, mm, I might get back to that on Monday morning. I'm done for the day. But I like that. I like the I like the stress of it. I like the adrenaline rush you get. And the one thing about cooking, it doesn't matter your level of education. If you, if you can solve a problem and contribute to a kitchen environment, you can do quite well. Education helps later on when you're owning businesses, don't get me wrong. But it is, a, it is an industry where if you're committed and you, you, know, you are happy to self-educate, you can really you can do very well. Did you have a mentor? I did have a mentor, um, a chef, Luke Thibault. I bought a very expensive sports car. I think I was about 19 and I couldn't afford it. So I had to get a, a job that paid me more money. <laughs> the only way to solve the problem. <laughs> and I took a job. I took a job that I was way underqualified to do. And uh, I worked with a two Michelin star chef from Toulouse. And after about three months, he said to me, pulled me aside and he said, you've got no idea, have you? And I said, no, I really don't. And I said, but I'm trying. And he said, yeah, I can see that. And he said, if you hadn't admitted that you had no idea, he said, I would have fired you. He said, all right, so these are the books I want you to read and this is what we're going to do. And he sort of took me under his wing for a couple of years. And um, it was the best education because he made me eat all the things that were foreign that I didn't want to eat. And he said, you don't have to like it. You just have to know whether it's good or bad or different. So Luke was amazing in terms of really setting a foundation and understanding the professionalism and the history of food and one of the first books he's got me to read was the history of food and when you understand you know the royal courts of the world why cuisine is cuisine because it is you know it's like art or haute couture or you know philosophy it all comes out of those royal courts and when you take it back as simply to something as simple as a croissant you know when you think of what it takes 
to make a croissant in terms of that in the period that they were that the croissant was invented it's quite extraordinary so in terms of where we see our industry today we've got a lot to and for me personally I have a lot to be thankful for to someone like Luke who does not only show you what is current and in the moment but what is the foundation of all that now you said that you think it's good to stop cooking what when did you stop cooking and why I worked for Neil Perry for a long time, and that's not the reason why I stopped cooking. <laughs> um, but I worked for David Thompson, I worked for Neil Perry, and then I moved to – I was the chef at the Park Hyatt in Sydney pre-Olympics, and then I was there for the Olympics. And then I moved with Hyatt to open a big restaurant in Singapore, which was extraordinary. You know, we used to do six, 700 people a day. At a hundred chefs on shift, and the thing about a chef is, well, for me personally, I thought I don't, I'm not a David Thompson, I'm not a Neil Perry. I'm like, what, what is my contribution? And I really struggled with the idea of what do you do? Do you, if unless you can create your own work, what, what's? The, I, I struggled with the point. So I'm not opening my own restaurant. I don't, I don't have a, a creative vein that I feel I really need to discover this and and have my contribution to the culinary landscape so i was quite a i wouldn't say uh, disillusioned but i love art and architecture and and i was introduced i met adrian zecker who was the chairman of arman resorts quite early in my career and it sort of came back full circle again and adrian and i had married my wife by then sunny and um Adrian was looking for someone, you know, what did he say? He said, how do you feel about going to live in one of my houses in Indonesia and look after my friends? And I said to Adrian, I said, is that the job description? He said, yeah, I think it is. And um, so we became general managers of one of the Aman resorts in, in Bali. And so I said to Adrian, I said, I don't know anything about being a hotel general manager. And he said, that's great. The last thing I want to do is hire a hotel general manager. <laughs> he said, you know, as a chef, you understand that your job doesn't end on Friday afternoon. You need to make money because kitchens don't work unless you're making profit and you can talk to people. And he said, those are the three things. And he said, the rest, he said, I'm sure you'll figure it out. And um, so we did figure it out. And it was one of the most amazing things I ever did because, you know, Adrian said to me one day, he said, define luxury. And I said, you know, the usual sort of quality of the sheets and, you know, the glassware. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you're missing the whole point. He said, we can we can build all that or we can buy all that. He said, it's the destination, it's the location, it's the culture. He said, it's accessibility to, you know, Borobudur to watch the sunrise in central Java. He said, that's luxury, falling asleep on the beach, being woken up by the birds and the rustle of the wind and the ocean. He said, everything else we can build. And I think I've taken that philosophy throughout my career after working for Adrian. Of what does it what does it truly mean to create experiences? And you know that's helped me in you know developing an idea like Woodcut. Is what do people what's what's the what's the thing we can't the intangible I suppose? And that's what we try to you know take from my experience as a hotelier. Now, you, you're saying to me off air that you built a hotel in the US for Amman that basically won all the awards. Tell us about that experience and then maybe how that might relate to what you've done at Woodcut. We've done Bhutan, India, Sri Lanka, and then Venice, Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, Turkey. Uh, and then Adrian, I was coming back from Turks and Caicos 
uh, where we were doing another project. And early in the piece, Adrian said, oh, there's this gentleman who wants to open a, an Amman in uh, in Utah. And I said, wow, like Utah. I'd never really thought of the desert as somewhere where you'd you know, real escape tourism, apart from quite, what do you call it, very active tourism. It's not a, generally not a luxury type resort destination. Anyway, I went out and had a look at this piece of land and it was a, it was on the lake and it wasn't quite right. And it actually took an act of Congress to get the land swap done because Adrian didn't like that land, but he, he liked another piece of land. And I mean, that's another story in itself, but it was really extraordinary because the land was it's so it's not remote because there's there's a town you know five miles away but it feels so ancient and it is a it is a underground sea that was you know millions of years ago and but it's so peaceful and as part of the it was very close to the navajo nation sacred land and you just felt when you walked on the land i just felt this is the most extraordinary destination and i went there one night with the architects and we lay down on the desert floor and uh, the stars were incredible and what they were it was actually a tactic they they decided that they wanted to put sky gazing lounges on top of the suites but they hadn't put it in their budget or or in the drawing so they were asking for more money but um it was really nice to you know see that part of the world that it, it made me appreciate you know the landscapes we have in australia far more you know those desert landscapes i'm a very coastal person but but i'm in geary uh we built it and we were flying back to new york and adrian said to me there were three architects that wanted to work as a joint group on on the project and i'd been working for adrian for about i don't know about 10 years at this point and adrian said to me he said you're a cook aren't you I said, yes, Adrian. And he goes, three cooks, one kitchen. How do you think that's going to work? And I said, yeah, I think we're going to have a bit of a problem. So he said, I'll tell you what. He said, let's just choose one cook, being the architect. And so I went back for the preliminary meetings. They'd said they'd chosen one firm. And we went back, and it was the same three architects. And they all gave me a business card, and they basically created a company called I-10 Studios because they live between Tucson and Phoenix. And I reckon that most of the work that they did was on the I-10. Yep. So needless to say, we, we went with the three architects. And I think it's a testament to sort of Adrian's vision. I love that project. It was probably the most interesting project I'd ever worked on. And in my role, I would work as a master planner with the architects to create, you know, the Aman the essence of the resort, uh, how we we take that. You know, in Asia, you can just put in bamboo, or you know, everything grows very easily yeah. to get so privacy this is like screens. Cactus and, country, is it? Where you're talking? Well, no, you're even higher, higher desert that you run out of cactus. It's tumbleweeds and and you know coyotes and jackrabbits. Right, but and but the mesas, rattlesnakes, lots of rattlesnakes. But we had to, you know, I used to design all the ceramics uh, for the restaurants. And so I was, I was really struggling because I said to Rick Joy, one of the architects, I said, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know where to go. You know, do you go down, you know, sort of Navajo inspiration? Do you go into a, you know, Santa Fe Tex-Mex type thing, which is, I said, there's nothing. And he said, well, let's go for a walk. And he started picking bits of sage and some wildflowers and there was eroded timber rusted steel bone horn and we got back to the project office and we laid everything on the table and he said well there you go there's your palette and it was absolutely extraordinary because what they see in the desert 
it trained it trained my eye to pay much more attention. He said it's not a barren landscape. There's so much happening in the desert. And these three architects, uh, Wendell, Rick, and Marwan, they were all of the you know Frank Lloyd Wright, Tally Hassan school yeah. of architecture, yeah. you know, of the earth. And it literally, if you've seen Amangiri, it does appear that it just comes out of the landscape. But their attention to detail and their understanding of the desert really made that resort the resort it is. We did an open kitchen. You could sit at the counter. We had a wood oven. We had a charcoal grill. In in the desert of Utah, I mean, there's really, without really going down a Navajo path, which we did some of that, but I said, you know, even the Navajo, it's cooking over charcoal. It's it's very traditional. You can't grow any vegetables there because you can't introduce any foreign seeds or plants into the desert environment because okay. you'll, you'll affect the whole ecosystem. So we did fry bread, and but the idea was that we cook in cast iron pans and as you were camping in the desert, but obviously in, in an Aman style, that's where really the concept of woodcut was kind of first born. So you've got this contrast of the desert not appearing to present you much and then you get to Sydney Harbour it's presenting you everything. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, you know what you can see, what you can do, um, that must have been a bit of a shock to the senses in, in a way. I think coming back from the US, particularly being in the desert for a couple of years, even though I was travelling a lot, you know, there's a lot that I saw. Every culture and every country that we lived in, one of the most extraordinary things that you start as a chef, you see things through different eyes. And the common denominator for me was everything's cooked over charcoal. That's the food that I like to eat, whether it's in the high, you know, back country of Croatia or in Indonesia or Mexico or Bhutan. As my notes, as I kept going through my notebooks, I'd written a lot on different ways of cooking with charcoal. I mean, I worked with a three-star chef in Spain, Santi Santa Maria, who'd actually built a vertical rotisserie that was charcoal. I'd never seen one of those before. So you sort of have a collection of ideas and and flavor memories. And so we opened a little restaurant in Sydney when we came back called The Bridge Room with a view that I just set up a business and I'd go off and do my hotel development work. And uh, we sort of won. I won Chef of the Year and we won Restaurant of the Year and we got three hats and all that sort of stuff. And in that restaurant, I brought a Japanese grill, custom built it here because I'd spent a lot of time in Japan and I really liked those flavors. And for me, it was when I cook with charcoal, it actually reminds me of my life in South Africa, which I suppose is probably the first food memories of Cape Malay food. Growing up in that environment, and in Australia is very similar in, in the sense that, you know, people barbecue. And, yeah. and so culturally, for me, it's not defined. It's, it's every culture. You know, you can eat some of the best barbecued food in Guadalajara in the, in the market at four o'clock in the morning in, in Mexico. And so that, so that for me was, why do we build a restaurant that has a menu that says entree main course dessert? I feel it's quite limited in its, in its what is possible. For me, I like the idea of the actual cooking method. So whether it's a wood oven, uh, an ash grill, like a Japanese style rabata grill, I saw these steam kettles when I was trying to get my US visa in Toronto. I had to go there because it was a Commonwealth country. And I saw some big grills in Arizona made by Grillworks. And so 
there was a there was a collection of ideas, and Sunny, my wife's predominantly vegetarian, so you know I said let's do a big vegetable counter, and you know culturally I think people eat with their eyes, so when you walk in and you see on display, if you see asparagus or you see fennel, or you see tomatoes, or you immediately think wow. That's what I feel like eating now. So then, when you get to the menu, you can see that the produce that is on display is what you're is what's available on the menu. And I think people are are drawn to that. You know, if you walk into a restaurant, I remember going to Chapinese in Berkeley, just outside of San Francisco, and there was this amazing raspberry tart when you when you walked in right at the entry of the restaurant. It wasn't even near the kitchen; it was on the on the reservation desk. Mm. And I thought, what a clever idea, because I'd ordered dessert before I'd even sat down. <laughs> and so I think there's a lot in my travels that now, you know, as a someone who's, you know, has a, a very big restaurant, we have about 170 staff here, about 50 chefs to run woodcut. There's a lot there that is now the creative side. I have much more flexibility and it's a very different approach to running a restaurant because instead of the chef having to be, you know, sit down and, you know, craft this menu intensely because you're the you're the chef, you're the creator. I feel now, sort of at my age and my time in my career, becoming more of a restaurateur than a, than a, a chef standing in a kitchen six days a week. I feel it's quite collaborative, and I have a great team here, and we we take an ingredient and we say, okay, what what cooking method is is best going to support this ingredient? Where is it going to shine? And I think that's so much more exciting than sitting on my own in a room trying to craft a menu. Restaurants traditionally are not really a democracy, but I'm sort of warming to the idea of of, uh, having a bit more democracy. Right. Well, that's an interesting idea. Now, um, you're known for steak and seafood, I guess, up there. Do you grow your own steak or... um What's the what's the story of your provision? Well, so we're we're very produce driven, and, and you know that term has been bandied around um, a lot. The, the the thing about the size of a restaurant of woodcut is that we, because of our volume, we are able to go directly to the source. Now, you know, one of my best and closest friends, Anthony Paharich, who owns uh, Victor Churchill and also Vic's Meats. When I when I started the, the journey of woodcut, I said to Anthony, okay, so in terms of meat, I said, I want to be in New South Wales as much as possible. So he said, that's, that's, that's then Rangers Valley and Stone Axe. So we went down that path and Anthony said to me, you know, you're probably going to sell about, you know, 40 tea, 30 to 40 T-bones a week. And Delmonico's, which is, a, you know, ribeye on the bone, you know, probably another 25, 30 of those. Well, within the first week, I think we're up to 100 T-bones. And now we consistently sell about 150 T-bones a week and about 120, 130 Delmonico's. So in terms of our volume, I'm, I'm not looking at what's in Anthony's warehouse. I'm actually looking at the animals that are on the paddock right. because yeah. our yeah. volume is extraordinary. But yeah. in saying that, um, the wonderful thing I feel by having a larger business is I make my own olive oil now, you know, with producers that we can go to in the Hunter Valley, Pacara Estate, we can go there and do when they're pressing the olive oil. Okay, well, 2,000 litres we press and, and uh, we blend for woodcut. I make my own smoked salt for woodcut. We, uh, we made our own gin. You know, so I think by the because of the scale of the restaurant, we're able to go to a, a broadacre farmer 
who, you know, there's a gentleman I work with now who's a broadacre farmer and, you know, he might grow, he's organic, everything's organic. So instead of them growing crops that then they take to market, we can say, well, why don't you grow me these five or six lines because we we have the volume then to sustain that sort of production. Ross, just for those who haven't seen the restaurant, how many seats does it have and how many covers do you do more than one cover a night? Yeah, so we have about 300 seats. Um, 80, of the, 80 of those seats is a bar. So we have about 220 dining seats, um, which is made up of – there's also four kitchens. So all the kitchens are open. You can sit at the counters. We have indoor, outdoor, private dining rooms. So we do about uh, 200 uh, people sitting. You know, last Saturday night we did just under 300. So – it sounds like a lot of people, but when you've got that many seats, I think we have about 80 staff on just to open the doors. Um, so it's broken up. The restaurant is a very linear space, and it's it's punctuated by the different kitchens. So it doesn't feel like you're in a very large restaurant. People people are always astounded when I say to them it's 300 seats. They say, oh, it doesn't feel that big, but it's because all the kitchens break up the space. Yeah. So I believe, honestly, in our business now, we're very much in the entertainment business and you know the food is obviously a very big part of what we do because people go out to dine but there's so many things from someone taking a reservation to how comfortable your chair is to the atmosphere in the restaurant and i believe from an an entertainment perspective the open kitchens people love it yeah people want to see how their food is created talk to me about the cost of running a restaurant like that obviously now you are by no means the dearest restaurant in Sydney, from what I gather. But uh, do you get any sort of bite back on the cost of food these days? Um, how, do, how does the average customer respond? Oh, look, I think that is one of our biggest challenges, apart from labour costs, labour costs being a bigger challenge than food cost. I think there's a couple of things, and I believe as a restaurateur that it's our role to make our restaurants as accessible as we possibly can I think when you start to decide that you want to eliminate one demographic within, and there's plenty of restaurants that choose, you know what, I'm going to be, you know, a fine dining restaurant. They don't, you know, encourage children to come along because they need to get a certain average check out of the seat. I honestly believe today sustainable business, it's my choice, but I want, you know, I think you can be everything to everybody in a sense that if you, I like the idea of having opportunity for people to be aspirational diners, that you think, wow, it's in Crown, it looks expensive, it's going to be expensive, but then they, they come in, they read the menu, and they say, you know what, I can have come and have some crab cakes, I can have, you know, a salad, a glass of wine and go, you know what, I really like this. It's I like it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back with my family. And yes, we do have, you know, $300 steaks on the menu. Now, that is driven by the quality of the meat, the producer, what it costs us to get it into the restaurant. The one thing I've seen over over the course of coming back from COVID lockdown and so forth, where we've had supply chain issues, we've had labor cost issues, we've had transport issues, costs have risen. 
uh, for raw materials, for product. But that's also been people can see that in the supermarkets. They can see that there's, if you go to one of the duopoly, you can look at the, there's no chicken on the shelves. And they'd go, wow, there's no chicken. I've never seen, or there's no lemons or beef has gone up by 50%. Those things are real. And I think sometimes the industry faces massive challenges that the public don't necessarily see that we're facing. So they just come to a restaurant and say, wow, it's so expensive. I could cook that at home. Yes, you probably could, but would you have all the other things that come along with a restaurant? It's not just about buying the piece of meat or the tomato or pouring that glass of wine. There's a lot that goes into it. And I think the fact that people can actually, what I'm seeing is guests are saying, wow, I can, I get the quality and they get the experience but because they're seeing an increase in pricing in the supermarket they realize that it's not just restaurants putting their prices up and if the if people walk away and they have a great experience personally i don't feel like they begrudge spending the money if people spend the money and the experience is not good then they are definitely letting you letting you know and they just won't be coming back you don't have to eat 300 dollar steak if you um, if you want to have something else a hundred percent and i think that's that's what you need to be i think you need to you can you can come to woodcut and you can go all out or you can come and have a really you know very low cost meal in the scheme of where you are and and so forth it's it's you know it's not going to be 10 bucks but there is we have a very accessible price point and like i said you know i'd rather have that than than discriminate to say you know we are so exclusive that you start to slowly erode your customer base that um because it's it's not accessible well shared plates is a thing with you and the and the t-bone steak that came to our table was had been carved by the chef so that you know we had portions uh, to eat was it was it wagyu would that have been what it was no, so that's T-bone, the T-bones, uh, that's grain-fed beef from Rangers right. Valley. Okay. And then Wagyu, once you get up to that marble score at Wagyu, um, you couldn't, I mean, you can eat a T-bone that's Wagyu, but it's really, really um, quite rich to eat. Right. So you know, Wagyu generally, generally beats is smaller cuts, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, but I do think the shared plate idea um, is probably something that diners might choose now if they feel like post-pandemic... Uh, you know, prices have gone through the roof. That yeah. um, you know, four of us I think shared, apart uh, from my two grandchildren, four of and, us shared that uh, the meat, which was great. And and I think uh, again, what we're seeing um, is people are opting for quality over quantity, mm. so they're really happy to go. You know what? And and you know, I remember. I think you know, my dad, if it wasn't. You know, it was meat, potatoes, and mm. I mean, salad for him was not a meal, and, and pasta is definitely not a meal. Um, but we've seen a shift in in that where people are consuming much more vegetables, up to sometimes even sixty percent of their meal, and then they'll have a smaller portion of protein, but they want it to be exceptionally good quality, right. and that's where we're seeing a shift in what okay. the the dining pattern is. That's an interesting observation, and I guess you're in a great position to to, to make that observation. Tell me, are um, international visitors um, interested in the restaurant? Do you get many? 
Oh, we had some American guests here uh, on Saturday night that they said, can you please open one of these in Los Angeles? And I said, well, it's definitely my goal. Don't worry. But, mm. I mean, international tourism is coming back um, slowly. It's not there yet. But it was great to see this, you know, two American families um, were traveling with three kids between the two the two families and um, they loved the restaurant they came back twice because they said you know it was sort of accessible and I have a seven-year-old daughter and one of the the mothers said to me she said I assume you have children and I said why is that she said because of the children's menu and I, yeah. I said oh she said my kids absolutely loved it she said normally we get the generic you know token dish for the kids but um Chicken nuggets. Uh, my, yeah, chicken nuggets. We, we don't have chicken nuggets. But it, it was um, – I, I think it's really important. I think that, yeah. you know, that, that is that, that is the next generation of diners. And um, my daughter at seven is, you know, she's eats pretty much everything. And, and she's quite particular. Um, she complained about the parmesan cheese the other day. She said, Dad, this is not like the normal parmesan cheese we get. I said, yes, I know, darling, but – they didn't have any at the, at the normal brand that we get. So she's quite particular, her palate. But, and I think that's, that's really important. I think kids should be welcomed in restaurants, and I think they should be taken as part of their education, whether it's whatever they're doing at school, but to have this understanding of what makes food exciting, healthy, and sort of set some of those um, uh, sort of positive you know affirmations about what dining in restaurants and and eating is all about well ross um i really appreciate your time uh, to talk to us here at travel writers radio uh, and uh, and i can hear in what you are saying and, and i experienced in sitting in the restaurant all of those things that you've been that you've done in your life um so I, you know, I guess I have another appreciation of um, of the experience that I enjoyed there at um, at Woodcut. And um, any thoughts that you may look to do Woodcut in other Australian capital cities? Like well, Melbourne, for um, I'm I'm going to put in a plug here because we are doing a dinner um, myself, and I'm taking a couple of chefs with me down to Melbourne. Right. Uh, we're going to be in the in Evergreen in um, Crown. Uh, down in Crown, Melbourne, yeah. uh, on Friday the 31st of this month. So we're sort of a bit more than a week away. Yep. So we're doing a very intimate dinner in uh, in the Evergreen space So for Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. So that's that's going to be, um, let's say maybe we're tipping our tipping our foot in the in the in the water down there to see if um, there's a. So if people want to book, I'm going to do one plug, Graham. But if people want to book, you can go to the Evergreen or Melbourne Food and Wine Festival to get all the details. But it's one dinner, and it's sort of a showcase of of my journey um, from uh, the Bridge Room, our last restaurant, to Woodcut, of what Woodcut's about. So. But yes, we'd love to, I'd love to have a restaurant in Melbourne. Um, I'd like to take the woodcut experience down there. And uh, we have a lot of Melbournians who come here that love it. So um, we'll see. Graham Kimler was speaking with Ross Lusted, chef and owner of Woodcut Restaurant at Crown Towers, Barangaroo, Sydney. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.